Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Fury Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. And we're bouncing around your ear holes once again. Are we wearing pants? You don't know. This could be anarchy. <laughs> but it's not. Why, why you gotta call me out like that, man? You know I'm not wearing any pants. <laughs> it's how I prefer you, sir. Uh, we want to uh, thank you guys for listening to another episode. We hope you guys are doing well as we enter full-blown holiday season. Holy shit, it's getting crazy out there. It's getting crazy and it's getting cold. I've been in denial about winter for a while now. and I, At the risk of once again delving into uh, weather bullshit small talk right here at the top, uh, anybody who knows me knows that uh, cold weather and I are, uh, are oil and water. We just don't get along at all, and that's why I've spent so much time and effort and expense moving around the country trying to escape it. But here in the Midwest, winter is reality. Thankfully, it hasn't fucking snowed yet, but I have a feeling that's probably very close on the horizon. Uh, a hair soup fellow like yourself, you're you're prepared for the cold. You're you're built for it. You would think so, but they keep on telling you if you live in the Midwest that uh, it eventually gets easier. And uh, I don't know who they are, but they are so full of shit their eyes are brown, <laughs> like a construction site porta potty. Man, I just I can't. I just can't do it. Hey, I get you. I, I moved away from Colorado on purpose. Uh, the winters there were kind of brutal, but. Uh, now I can walk around in a snowstorm up here wearing a t-shirt and people think I'm lunatic. It's great. When I moved to Vegas uh, a couple years ago, I worked with a couple of women, who, uh, one of whom was from Lakeville, Minnesota, which is a uh, far extreme south, uh, not a suburb, it's about 45 minutes south of the Twin Cities, and another gal who was from uh, New York State. And it was about 60 degrees one day, and they both came in with windbreakers, scarves, and net hats. And I said, are you serious? And they had both been there longer than I, and they said, well, you know, you live here long enough and your blood thins. But nonetheless, I mean, uh, I, I just don't think, I mean, I've been all over the country, and uh, until it snows, I mean, even if it's freezing or below freezing out, until it snows, I actually don't bother with the coat. Yeah, kind of the same way. It has to be pretty extreme. Like, I'll, I'll slap a hoodie on, but that's just because it rains, and I wear glasses, and I don't want to get uh, rain on my glasses if I can help it as much as possible, so... Uh, well, Jim, I, I want to apologize if I sound like, uh, we were talking before the, the, the taping here, uh, if I sound like a hundred miles of bad road, but uh, as you pointed out, we had a gig last weekend, and uh, that went really, really well for us, and I know you guys, awesome. you just did practice last weekend, so you're probably in the same boat. Yeah, I just had practice last night, which is why I'm a little bit thumbtacks and kitty litter, scotch and cigarettes over here, so... Um, you know, the, the, the kind of singing that you and I do will definitely turn your throat into uh, underground chuck pretty pretty easily and quickly. You know, and I've let it be said that I will play pretty much any gig you put in front of me. I just love being on stage. I like doing what I do, uh, expressing my art in whatever way that I can. But I gotta say, yep. I don't know who booked this gig that we played. It was at a, a venue called uh, The Plaid Pig in Tacoma, Washington. And it's a great venue. A grubby little bar, dirty little painted on the walls, and just... I mean, it's 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 a hole in the wall, but it's the kind of hole in the wall that you expect for metal and, and, and shit like that. And, and uh, so I don't know who booked this gig, but it was... the first, And these are all very talented musicians. Let me say that above anything else because i don't want anyone to think i'm denigrating these other musicians they were all fantastic in their own right the first act was uh 
uh, it was a guy on a ukulele and it was just the guy on the ukulele and he's just banging away on a ukulele for a half hour 45 minutes and tiptoe through the tulips not quite i mean he was doing like uh aggressive shit i mean and i've not seen anyone with that kind of energy on a on a uke for a long time and it was like i said it was fantastic and then it would take a fantastic musician to actually yeah to sell something uh, aggressive. Yeah, he pulled on, it on off. Ukulele. It was I mean I wanted to hate it. I initially started out like what the fuck, and you know because <laughs> here we are loading in a full kit, big drum set, big you know speaker amps and all this shit, and then this guy just walks on stage, no gear except uh, his microphone that the the venue provided and um, a fucking ukulele, and he just. He, he wailed on it, and he had the kind of stage presence, and he had the kind of uh, energetic approach to things that I wish to God I could project. I wish I had that. So, wait, you're there uh, performing aggressive metal, and you're saying yep. the guy with the ukulele had a, uh, a more prominent stage presence than you? No, he just had uh, he had more a... of, a, a, of a, a gusto. He was very, very uh, just energetic. I don't know another way to say it. He was just fantastically energetic he worked the crowd which you know was fantastic and and then when he got off the stage there was this woman and you want to talk about scotch and cigarettes this woman gets up with a little practice amp and uh, a guitar and that's it and she sits down and belts out these uh, these tunes for another 45 minutes again very minimalistic uh, and i was like initially kind of like all right what the hell is this she she got it she was great and she again, crowd work was on point. It made me want to do better crowd work, so I, I kind of strive to push my crowd work that night. So, by the time we got up there, it's like, look, guys, I'm sorry, we're gonna change the atmosphere in here a little bit, uh, and we did, and it went really, really well. And and we have this new track that we haven't ever. It's not even finished. I mean, I was reading the lyrics off of my phone. They're still trying to figure it out instrumentally. It wasn't even finished, but we decided to fuck it. So this is not one of the tracks that made the uh, the the brand new Another Sentiment <laughs> LP Ascending the Abyss out now. It's not one of the new ones from the new record? No, in fact, it's probably going to be one of the first ones on the new new record. So it's called Corruption, and uh, we, we weren't ready to play it, but we did it anyway, and we got a little mosh pit going, and, and it was aggressive, and... I loved it. It was fantastic. And then we got off and a power punk band came on after us. So it was just a really weird grouping of uh, of musical acts. But it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yes, it sounds like a really entertaining uh, sort of mixed bag of a bill there. But, uh, I mean, uh, good for everybody for rising to the occasion and not allowing themselves to be blasted off the stage by somebody who maybe was bringing a little more volume. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, that would have been a fun show to see. I, I once again, am uh, very regretful that I am not... Anywhere close to your area, otherwise we're to come and check that out for sure. Ah, you'll be up here eventually, one of these days. Oh, for sure, absolutely. So, now I I kind of was uh, on the subject of shit that pisses me off. We we always talk about the, the grinding my gears shit and everything. And uh, I've been playing a lot of mobile games at work. I've been having a lot of sit around time at work, and so you know I fuck around with the mobile games. And, and I know you talked about it a little bit, but I just kind of want to reiterate. Whoever puts that little teeny tiny microscopic X on the oh, edge of the ad uh, to where your fat thumb can't click it and it automatically pulls up, you know, uh, uh, a window to, 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 to promote or a, 
uh, Google Play Store or whatever uh, link to download the app, uh, you should burn in hell. Absolutely burn in mm-hmm. hell. Yeah. And I'll tell you what. I want to set you on fire. If you're if your game that you're advertising, or product that you're advertising, or service that you're advertising forces me into a situation where I have to close an additional window, you can guarantee I'm not spending money on your shit. And that's just... Right. That's the truth, because Stone Cold said so. And that's the bottom line, because Stone Cold said so. That's all I'm saying. I mean, I've worked in marketing for my entire adult life, and I've, I've kind of been over that quite a bit, to an ad nauseum degree. Uh, so anybody that listens regularly has had to hear me talk about that. But I, I, there have been times, there have been moments in my career where I've definitely had some ethical questions. Um, not necessarily over the mode of presentation of whatever it is that I'm putting together, um, because I don't have any control over that. All I have control over is my portion of it, the ideation, the copy, the message. That's the part that's my sandbox. Um, so I don't really have a whole lot of say over things like banner ads or how they are put together technologically even though I definitely have written that stuff and continue to write that stuff but I just uh, I can't I can't imagine I, I don't know I do know to, to a degree how metrics work and when people break down things like is this ad effective is the messaging effective is the delivery system effective I just I don't know how anybody even the people who put ads together who are also human can look at things like invasive pop-ups or hard-to-close microscopic three-pixel-wide Xs that no human finger could possibly hit accurately without actually bringing up the ad. I don't know how anybody can look at those things and think, yeah, this will work, or this will make people happy, or even people like this well enough, this is effective enough, that it's actually providing an adequate enough return on investment to keep on advocating for and engaging in this practice. I can't... I, I don't imagine, I, I can't imagine that could be the case. And I am in many ways in the inside the belly of the beast. I mean, I, I have worked in marketing for years. So I don't know how this continues to happen. As much as people hate it, how could it possibly be effective? I agree with you. So, uh, burn in hell. That's all I got to say. Yeah. Uh, news related items. I know we, we don't uh, touch on the Nerd News Nexus nearly as much as we need to, but in the interest of Nerd News Nexus information, uh, it has been revealed that Marvel will be doing another trilogy of Spider-Man movies featuring Tom Holland after No Way Home. And he's been real coy about this shit. He's been in the news saying things like, oh, well, if I'm playing Spider-Man at 30, then something's wrong and blah, 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 playing it real coy. What happened to Tom Holland? He used to be our go-to spoiler monkey. And now... He's been tamed. They own his well, ass. I'm guessing if you work for Marvel long enough, eventually they beat that shit out of you. Mark because Ruffalo. Because he was the go-to spoiler monkey. Yeah, Mark, Mark Ruffalo. Look at you, Ruffalo. Because uh, Tom Holland does have the reputation of being the loose lips, sink ships kind of kid <laughs> and has been for a while, I'm sure he's had some coaching sessions with Marvel Legal or their PR department where they pull him aside and they go, look, kid, uh, especially No Way Home. Everybody knows Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield is going to be in it. That shit's leaked a long time ago. Plus, we've issued strike and takedown notices anytime anybody puts that stuff up. If it wasn't legitimate, we wouldn't do that. Everybody knows this. But right. at the very least, we can preserve the illusion 
of of uh, of being <laughs> spoiler free. We can we can in official ways through through PR channels and junkets and interviews. We can we can toss out all the red herrings we could possibly cook up. Um, because yeah, if you go out there and admit that you did some work with uh, with Andy and Toby, then that's going to be a, kind of bad for a long term strategy. So he had to know. Yeah. That he was signing on for on another whole trilogy of films, uh, and he had to know that well before now. Otherwise, uh, they certainly would have announced it. But here's the thing about that: like Spider-Man No Way Home, at the time of this recording, opens in just about two weeks. We're recording this on, oh, on Wednesday, December first, and No Way Home opens the the seventeenth. Technically, the sixteenth. It's I have been a long it time. 16th. It's been a long time since I've yeah. been excited. This excited to see a uh, a Marvel movie, and I, I'm a huge fan of everything yeah. they put out. I can't believe I almost missed it. Open, open, open. Tickets went on sale on Spider Monday, a nice twist on the Cyber Monday idea, and I immediately went and bought tickets for two different shows, one to see it with a friend in uh, a suburb of Chicago, and another one to see it uh, with another friend here in my local area. And in both cases, uh, my first, I, I actually got tickets for the first showing. They're doing a preview on Thursday afternoon, the 16th, and I think I got tickets for a 2.20 matinee, because that's how fucking paranoid I am about spoilers. I oh, mean, yeah. Obviously, we know that, you know, I, I, I don't feel bad dropping the bomb, because it isn't a bomb at this point. It's barely a firecracker that, that Garfield and, and Maguire are going to be in this movie. We know that. And the trailers have given up the fact that we we can also look forward to, uh, you know, Thomas Hayden Church and, um, and, and Jamie uh, Foxx and, Fox and, yeah. and, yeah, all the this, the multiverse villains. We, we know all this by now. Uh, but... Yeah, I need to be the first to see this uh, as early as possible, just so that I can make sure to, uh, to to avoid the spoilers, because you know they're going to be out there. So I got tickets to see it twice already, and in both cases I went on Fandango to buy tickets, and within an hour or two of those things going on sale, um, it was really hard to find two seats together in any theater I looked at for any showing. So that is going to be a big deal. There's going to be a lot of people seeing this movie. It's highly anticipated, as we've, we've drummed. Uh, into everybody's heads who listens to this and who it's it's just you know it's going to be the biggest movie of the year uh easily i, I feel pretty confident in saying that easily it's, it's, you know it's not even going to be close i mean dune did well uh shang chi did well eternals even though there were some issues with it did pretty well but spider-man i think even with pre-ticket sales two weeks early has all but blown them out of the water oh yeah already so oh, yeah. yeah it's going to be great I it's going to be great i didn't buy early tickets yet i i just kind of decided to let fate dictate when i see the movie when it comes out, because I mean, my I work on an on-call schedule, so it's really hard to plan these kind yeah. of things ahead of time. But it will be consumed as quickly as possible, and for the exact same but reason. I think part of the reason it, it kind of ties into the spoiler thing: why Holland and Marvel at Al did not spill the beans on this new in the works Spider-Man trilogy is because narratively, when you go to see a movie, you always kind of want to feel like. Maybe the stakes are pretty high. Right. You want to feel like your protagonist is in danger or else there's no tension in the narrative. And if they had come out even a couple weeks ago, uh, before the tickets went on sale for this, and said, oh yeah, Holland's coming back for another tidy trilogy, then I think maybe... Marvel, look, Marvel isn't stupid. They, they're not perfect, but they're really not stupid. And anybody who's it, it, you know in, engaged in their empire knows they're not stupid. So I think they wanted to wait until after the tickets went on sale, before coming out with this, oh yeah, we got it back from our movies, because, I mean, you, you know Spider-Man's going to win. Look, that's not a spoiler either. That's just understanding what movies are and, and understanding how how stories go. Spider-Man's going to win. They've got all this, you know, like Cumberbatches in the trailer, like, I can't hold them back, and there's all kinds of danger with all these extra villains, but 
Yeah, Spidey's going to emerge victorious from this. And we knew that, but still, Marvel admitting, oh yeah, by the way, we're bringing Holland back for another three movies, it does, at least microscopically, sort of lessen the tension a little bit if you're looking at sort of uh, making sure that you keep the stakes high for the narrative in this movie. Right, um, and, and they've, so got a real bit, they they've got a real history with, with doing that and being like, oh, uh, well, I mean, Black Widow was kind of an exception because we all knew Black Widow was going to die. Because by the time right. Black Widow came out, Endgame was already out and done. But uh, they have right. already got like, oh, well, there's a Guardians of the Galaxy 2 already in the works. And, you know, there's a this, that, and the other thing. And it's like they're always really so far ahead of themselves that it's really, you know, grain of salt. The, the level of, of uh, dramatic tension that they can build within these characters. And uh, it's yeah. something that they dick around with a lot in the comic books themselves. And, in fact, the X-Men have kind of embraced that ideal at this point for good or for bad. And uh, again, I'm not a huge uh, comic reader anymore, but this thing that they've been doing with the X-Men where they've got their own little mutant nation of uh, Krakoa and on Krakoa, they can rebirth any mutant who dies. It's essentially Charles Xavier has a copy of their brain patterns in his head. And anytime a mutant dies, they can bring them back. So any mutant that's ever really died in Marvel Comics to date can be brought back with a thought. And I mean, and there's so many questions that I have for that. But that's a topic entirely for another day. But it... it, it, it yeah, that really does open a can of worms. It took the dramatic tension out of that. It's like, oh shit, Cyclops dies in this issue. Oh, he's back. Never mind. Oh, Jean Grey died again. Oh, wait, she's back. Never mind. Well, I guess maybe the only sort of like uh, kryptonite magic bullet at the risk of mixing universes, uh, kryptonite in the, in the Marvel Universe, uh, that, that might toss a wrinkle into that is, uh, yeah, there's a copy of uh, the brainwaves, very mutant, in, in Charles Xavier's head. He can recreate. Well, what if he dies? Yeah, then where do all the backups go? Right. It's like losing your hard drive. Right. So maybe that's a thing. But, you know, comics for years have had that sort of problem of death is never really permanent. And they can bring anybody back at any time, whether they actually bring back the character who died, or just reboot their series, or have an alternate universe sort of telling of it. Or if you just plain old have a, uh, a character like Wolverine that can regenerate from three blood cells, takes a couple days, but he'll come back. Um, you know, there's, there's okay. always those, those issues in comics. You mentioned Wolverine, and now I can't help but say it. Okay, here's my fucking problem with the uh, right. X-Men mutant regeneration. Okay, Wolverine dies, right? They in theory bring him back on Krakoa using their mutant revival protocols. How does he still have the adamantium? He can't. I mean, you know, they touched is on he, that a little is bit. Is he the only the f- one that doesn't die? Like, because he's got the immunity? Well, or, I mean, I don't know. There's so the many fuck fucking plot holes. I mean, you can sort of regenerate somebody's brainwaves from a backup if, if Xavier has in his head. You can sort of, like, regenerate their body if you have a DNA sample, if you got so much as a hair or a fingernail. Cool. But uh, they even touched on that in the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the books and the films, that uh, that adamantium is a, uh, it's an aftermarket upgrade, man. That's a, uh, a post-birth enhancement, uh, which he had to go through when it's very painful <laughs> and very difficult. Um, but, you know, he gets it taken away. And, oh, God, you know, I remember seeing this meme that somebody put on Facebook a while ago, like... Um, you know, Magneto. Hey, I can control metal with my mind. Wolverine. Metal skeleton. Hey, I'm going to go kick that guy's ass. And then like three pages later, what have I done? Oh, I like, but, uh, I like how know. they just send everybody up against him. And then one of them was Iron Man. He goes, 
Oh my god, his suit was literally made of metal. And he's holding like a tinfoil ball in his hand. Uh, I should probably warn Tony. Wow, that guy was literally encased in metal. Yeah, <laughs> his suit was literally made of metal. You could just collapse that entire guy's body like an ashtray if you feel like it. But, you know, then again, like, that's... Uh, it's just so strange. It's so strange to think about because just the way that they've got these things set up, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens with the films. Um, not that those are necessarily... I mean, the source material being what it is, the films have kind of, in some ways, to a wider audience at least, become the definitive versions of these characters. So I guess uh, it remains to be seen how we're going to uh, incorporate some of these characters that haven't been a part of the MCU for a while, like the Fantastic Four or like the X-Men, into upcoming things. Um, but that sort of dovetails with the thing we're going to talk about today because our set-aside subject that we want to discuss <laughs> is the cult of the anti-hero. Um, yes. Anti-heroes, of course, being defined as not necessarily uh, a, a white hat hero or a black hat villain, but kind of somewhere in between. Right. Sort of one of those uh, gray morality guys that uh, maybe has a whole lot of redeeming characteristics, but still gets up to some shady shit once in a while, but they're nonetheless poised as being somebody that we want to root for, even if they aren't necessarily someone who keeps their nose clean 100% of the time. Right. And uh, we'll talk about a very famous example of that and, and how that sort of like uh, dovetails into the Marvel Universe uh, at some point during the narrative of this episode. Right, and kind of the thing that brought this subject matter to mind is now I discovered, like I said before, I discovered a podcast real recently uh, done by Michael Imperioli and uh, Steve Sharippa, of course, who played uh, Christopher and Bobby on The Sopranos, where they just they break each episode down uh, in turn. They have guests on and whatnot to talk about behind-the-scenes shit, but uh, they, they break down each episode of The Sopranos in turn and kind of uh, offer their interpretations of things that go on. And one of the things that just keeps getting me is Tony Soprano. What's your fucking excuse? Now, I'm a huge fan of The Sopranos. I have been since it came out, since it debuted, uh, when I was a much, much younger man. But <clears throat> uh, we have this character of Tony Soprano. And the entire conceit of the show, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, it's like 25, 30 years old. Get off your ass. But the idea is... <laughs> Not even is, I'm that far behind. <laughs> right? The idea is that there's this mob boss who's having issues with uh, anxiety attacks and panic attacks. And so he starts seeing a psychiatrist. And this is before that Analyze This, Analyze That movie thing came out. So it's kind of the, the birth of this. And it's also kind of the birth of premium format uh, television. Uh, something that breaks the the half-hour mold or breaks the, you know, what you can and can't do on television because, of course, it was aired on HBO, uh, you're able to get away with a lot of you know, nudity and swearing and violence. And, yeah, they're dropping F-bombs and bodies all over the place. Oh, absolutely. Your sister's ass. And so your central character is the head of the New Jersey crime family, the Maya crime family, Tony Soprano. And his exploits day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, how he deals with his therapy, how he deals with his his actual family, how he deals with his mob family. And what you come to realize is you are kind of pulling for the guy, even though over the course of six seasons, you get to see the shady, underhanded, evil shit that he gets up to. He's a stone cold killer. 
He's a racist at times. He's a bigot at times. He's, you know, you find all of these reasons why you should absolutely hate this guy. But you still find yourself pulling for them. Whether that's the result of uh, the writing, whether that's the result of the humanization of the character and all of us kind of feeling, oh, you know, I could see a little bit of myself in this guy. You know, I'm not sure what exactly causes that. And that's kind of what brought this topic to mind is I wanted to kind of discuss these anti-heroes and find out what it is about these characters that draws us so inexorably towards them and, and into their kind of orbit where we're kind of rooting for them, even though we know we shouldn't. The essence of the anti-hero. Right. What makes these people as protagonists of entertainment, uh, whether they're murderers or whether they're vigilantes or whether they're drug dealers or, or whatever they are, what makes us want to root for them? Yeah, and I mean, and then I start examining a lot of the uh, quote-unquote premiere format TV that I've watched, and, and you get a lot of examples of these anti-heroes, and we'll break these down uh, one by one a little bit later, but we got things like... Uh, you got Walter White, your Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. You got Vic Mackey and his uh, Strike Squad from The Shield. You've got you got Marty Byrne from Ozark. Oh, I haven't seen Ozark yet. I've heard a lot of good things. I, I'm about halfway through the third season, and the fourth one is forthcoming. Um, Dex, but I, you know, I, I could Morgan. say that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And I could say that Ozark is very clearly inspired by Breaking Bad, which it is. Um, but Breaking Bad was in turn inspired, I think, by The Sopranos. Like you said, I mean, really, uh, The Sopranos was the first uh, sort of premier peak TV must-see show. HBO had done original programming before that. They did like a, uh, a series about football. They did, like you know, Dream things like on, Dream On yeah. and Arliss and, yeah, all that. But it wasn't really until The Sopranos came along that it became really just water cooler must-see TV. And so I think a lot of stuff that followed... If it wasn't necessarily directly in the mold of The Sopranos, it still followed the same sort of like idea of we have this character who is somebody who ordinarily you wouldn't root for. If you if you just read a, a story about Tony Soprano, mob boss killer, uh, you know somebody who runs a crime empire in the, in the newspaper, you wouldn't think, oh my gosh, I identify with that guy. What a compelling character! But because we sort of are, are, are given a peek into their their day to day life and get a sense that. Uh, they're just kind of trying to get by, or maybe they're just kind of doing what they think is right in the circumstances based on their, their surroundings, their upbringing, what's happening to them. Uh, you sort of sympathize and empathize a little bit with, with the position these folks are in, and and uh, and therefore it really does become one of those things that you keep watching, and even after you see them murder somebody or or anything like that, you, you still sort of, uh, you're sort of in their corner because they, they become somebody who you identify with on some level, they become somebody you sympathize with, and... And, uh, I don't know, I think in a lot of ways that's kind of like life. I mean, at the risk of sort of like skipping ahead to the end of this, I think a lot of the <laughs> a recurring theme of a lot of these characters is that I think all of us can identify with them because we've all been in situations where you know, the right thing, quote-unquote, is supposedly required of us or we, we like to think of ourselves as good people, but sometimes we've done things we're not proud of. Morally and, dubious. And, uh, yeah, nobody is a completely white hat or black hat kind of a, a hero or villain. We all do things that that circumstances dictate. Um, we all have regrets. We all look back on things that we do or things that we've said or situations we found ourselves in where we kind of maybe did something that wasn't uh, 100% something we feel good about. But So I think on some level it's a lot more realistic because nobody is completely virtuous and nobody is completely evil. 
Um, so being able to put these complex gray morality characters up on the screen and ask us to sympathize with them, I think it's not that big of a leap because we've all kind of been there. I mean, maybe not with somebody's neck under our boot deciding whether or not to kill them or maybe not, you know, in, a, in an RV trailer someplace trying to perfect our meth recipe so we can get a bunch of junkies hooked on our product. But, you know, still, entertainment tends to take things that are that are mundane and, and make them a writ large allegory or example or or something that, that, that we can kind of read into a little bit and understand that maybe the stakes aren't always that high. Right. But we've still found ourselves in these situations and sometimes we zig when we should have zagged and, and do things that maybe aren't the things we should have done. And I think that's a lot a large example of why we do end up rooting for these characters because uh, at least in the case of, let's say, uh, I mean, we've got a whole lot of examples. I sent you like a 20-person list that I've just off the yeah. top of my dome. But uh, Vic Mackey, I don't know if you, did you ever watch The Shield? I didn't watch it consistently, but I did see a couple episodes because uh, Michael Chiklis is a fantastic guy. I, I fucking love Michael Chiklis. He's got an intensity about him that's just wonderful. And and this is... An it reads ex- very authentic, no matter what he's doing. Right, exactly that. And, and so the, the idea behind The Shield was, it's this drug and uh, gang task force that works out of uh, Farmington in uh, California. And the idea is that they are the ones that go out and crack the heads and kick the asses. And over the course of the show, you get to realize they're kind of dirty. And by kind of, I mean a lot of dirty. But you see that they're, you know, kind of not Robin Hooding because they're definitely doing it for their own fulfillment and their own uh, bottom line. But you see them trying to be good. But also, you know, I mean, there's just a real uh, divide. And, and, and you kind of, you know, you got a little wish fulfillment in that. And uh, you kind of say, oh, well, if, you know, a pile of cash was left over from a drug bust and nobody was watching it, yeah, I'd probably take a few bundles of money, you know, just just to... Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons and uh, evil's punished, but at what cost? It just, it really does raise a whole lot of interesting uh, moral questions. And, right. And that, in many ways, does really relate to, to everybody's life. And Dexter Morgan from uh, Dexter on Showtime. Uh, who hasn't wanted to take the law into their own hands? Who hasn't read these stories of uh, uh, people getting away literally with murder? Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, and wanted yeah, to yeah, yeah. go out and exact some form of justice. You know, have some form of, of uh, retribution on these people at large. Uh, I mean, and, and me and you, of course, we've had our examples with that in real life with the To Catch a Predator stings and uh, Indeed we have. our working with uh, law enforcement and, and NBC to kind of take care of that. Um, but you see it all the time. Uh, in fact, it's a very recurring theme. You saw that I'm going to quote the awful Daredevil movie with uh, Ben Affleck uh, where you see him in the court and he's you know, the defense attorney, or no, he's the prosecuting attorney, where they're trying to put a criminal away, the criminal gets away with it because of, you know, injustice or, you know, the, the judge is corrupt. or The corrupt legal system. Right. Yeah. But he's got that living detector of right or wrong, and, and, you know, he's a human lie detector, and so he'd go out after the fact and, and kick the shit out of these guys, you know, in a vigilante sense. And there's a little bit of that kind of wish fulfillment to that, too. And the same thing with Dexter Morgan. It's like you see these uh, 
the idea of a serial killer is terrifying in and of its own self. You know, especially a serial killer who knows the rules and can't get caught. So Dexter, in and yeah. of himself, just on paper, is horrifying. But we get this little... A serial killer that, sil- that kills serial killers. Right. We get this little vicarious thrill that he's killing bad guys. That he's he's doing what can't be done. He's, ooh, he's skirting the law, but he's doing it for, you know, noble intent and whatnot. And I think that allows a lot of us to kind of to gaze past that veneer of the evildoer and kind of see, like, ourselves in that situation because we've all kind of I, I think we've all kind of had that wish that you know I, I wish I could you know just fucking grind that guy to dust in my heels you know uh, and we get a lot of that with these anti-hero characters you see a lot of that with Tony Soprano uh, he gets to go and say and do the things that we don't because of society or we don't because we know damn well it would get us arrested you know or, uh, and even though it's wrong, we've been had it drilled into our heads since we were kids that if the other kid hits you, you don't hit that kid back because two wrongs don't make a right. But there is something that's incredibly compelling about vengeance or justice that kind of keeps us coming back to watch these things. Like you said, Dexter, you know, he's he kills serial killers that either haven't been caught yet or that have escaped justice or got off on technicalities or whatever it is. <laughs> house. Um you know, so it becomes, again, yeah, one of those very fulfilling things. We all want to see evil punished. And if we got to, you know, step on a line a little bit and maybe become a little evil ourselves, gaze into the abyss long enough that the abyss gazes back into us, we become the very monster we're hunting. Um, you know, if not for the fact that the the bad person did the bad thing to begin with, retribution would be necessary. So you can sort of rationalize it by saying, hey, it forced my hand. I didn't want to kill that guy, but... He killed my dad, or whatever it is. Whatever justification or rationalization you can throw on it, uh, it, it still goes away. After that we've a all while. dreamt of revenge. Yeah, yeah. The, you know, the, vengeance is, is a human. Whether or not it makes sense, whether or not it actually winds up, you know, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. Vengeance is a very understandable human emotion that we're not always at liberty to indulge because of all the things you said. It's the wrong thing to do. We're going to go to jail. Whatever it is. So, being able to project ourselves and identify with these anti-heroes in entertainment gives us, that it's, it's, it's cathartic in a way it lets us kind of express that danger at a safe distance and if we can't go out and kick the shit out of the guy who you know, killed our friend or who you know, uh, stole our girlfriend or whatever it is we're pissed off about that week then we can watch somebody else do it and maybe vicariously we, we feel just a little bit tiny better. And I wonder if the creators of some of these characters just know this and, and know our weakness for these characters and decide to fuck with us a little bit because I was thinking Darth Vader while you were talking all this. Darth Vader, yeah. we're rooting for his redemption from the very beginning. Once he realizes his kids are, are, are strong with the Force, we see the conflict in him. It's mentioned numerous times. And of course, then we see his redemptive arc at the end, right before he dies, by taking out Palpatine. Or so we thought. Thanks a lot, last hour. Hey, hey man, spoiler alert with that, would you? Right, Come on. right. But, uh,. Again, that movie's... Yeah, speaking of bringing back dead characters for narrative structure. Right. But here's the thing. It's like 83, Return of the Jedi comes out, right? And we're all just like, oh, God, Vader saved himself at the end. (laughs) Bring us back to, uh, what was it, 2003 when uh, Revenge of the Sith came out? And we get to see him walk into the Jedi Temple all strong, shoulders high, evil yellow eyes glaring lights his lightsaber and strikes down the fucking younglings at the Jedi Temple. I killed them. I killed them all. They're dead. Every single one of them. 
This man mm. murders innocent children. And here we are. It's like, oh shit, I've been rooting for that guy the whole time. Huh? Well, it's too well, I, mean, I, I killed a couple younglings when I was in Pennsylvania, but uh, you know, nothing <laughs> like what he did. That's quite a few. Yeah, I get it. What you meant, the beer. I get it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah I, sure. The, 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 beer. the beer. So let's move on. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, I, like I said, I think the creators like to throw that out at us every now and again just to remind us how bad these people truly are and, and to kind of yeah. chastise us for rooting for these people. Like, There's been a lot of talk recently about the way The Sopranos ended. Spoiler alert again for a 30-year-old show. Um, or 25, I guess. I don't know. 24, 25-year-old show. Whatever. Uh, the last scene of the last episode fades to black as a, a supposed hitman is coming to kill Tony Soprano in front yep. of his family in the booth at a diner while Don't Stop Believing Blair's on a jukebox behind him. Now, here's the thing. And they're eating onion rings like communion wafers. Right. The thing is, it's never explicitly stated whether or not Tony Soprano actually bought the farm in that particular instance or not. We're left to our own specifications, our own, what's the word I'm looking for? Our uh, Interpretations? Right. We're left to our own interpretations of how we feel this played out. And David Chase has always been rather mum on the subject going, well, I mean, that's kind of up to the viewer to decide. And, and so he finally went on a rant recently, and, and I, don't, I don't blame him, where he basically said, look, this guy's a horrible person. But you want to see him actually gunned down in front of his family? What does that say about you? You know? And, you know, yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. And then, of course, he admitted that, uh, in his estimation, Tony's dead. So, uh, sorry to say that. Well, I mean, even if it wasn't at that moment, on. it's going to happen eventually. You right. live by the sword, you die by the sword, whatever. But, I mean, that I don't know. I really think, again, like this is a little bit of a tangent, which we never do on this never. show. But nonetheless... I really kind of feel like anytime you have to go to the the given creator or the showrunner or the head writer or whoever the creative force is behind a series or any piece of entertainment and ask them, so what did that mean? You're sort of like shooting yourself in the foot because it means whatever you think it means. What was in the suitcase in Pulp Fiction? Whatever you want it to be. Uh, was Deckard a replicant? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, maybe Ridley Scott has one idea. Philip K. Dick has another idea, apparently. Uh, you know, was Tony Soprano gunned down? Well... That's really up to you to decide. Did the top tip over in Inception? It's So many of these things, they're left ambiguous for a reason, so that whatever you want to happen is pretty much whatever happened. And to sort of like go to somebody and ask for a definitive yes or no one way or the other, it really defeats the purpose of entertainment. Uh, to ask somebody, an audience member, to identify with, to project themselves on a given character, whether it's a hero, anti-hero, antagonist, protagonist, what have you, and then expect that at the end of it, they want you to tell them how you should feel about that character or, or what happened to them. It's just sort of, it's, it's, you know, maybe Tony got shot in the head, but that's really shooting yourself in the foot. Agreed. And, and, and it's, it's kind of cool how uh, the, the writers of these shows know we're rooting for them, and they try to give us a satisfying send-off for a lot of these characters. Uh, some of them aren't left open for interpretation, even and even though they're not... People will make that up. Okay, so Walter White, at the very end of Breaking Bad, gets shot by his own device, rescuing Jesse mm -hmm. Pinkman. Um, and as we leave him, we're spiraling up. The camera's raising up. We see him bleeding out on the floor. It's pretty 
cut and dry, you know. But people were still not happy. Did Walter White die? You didn't exactly show him dying. And it's like, after a while, you just got to be like, bro, you can't have it all. You can't have everything. Yeah. They, Dexter Morgan. I mean, and really, I mean, death was the only thing that worked for Walter White. I mean, he, he can't go on after that. He, no, he, he did what he needed to to save his family. He, he did what he set out to do brilliantly. And, you know, at some point his motivations changed from, I'm going to, you know, provide for my family for my, you know, I have terminal cancer and I can't really do anything about it, uh, to uh, the sort of like very oft-cited speech where he's talking to his wife and says, you know, I did it because I was good at it and it eventually became fun. His motivations changed mm -hmm. uh, because people as human beings, we grow and we change and we adapt and we evolve. Who are you talking to right now? Who is it you think you see? I am not in danger, Skyler. I am the danger. A guy opens his door and gets shot and you think that of me? No. I am the one who knocks. Uh, so that was really more than anything... I think, setting up what eventually happened for the ending. Because if he was just doing it to save his family, to, to give them a nice tidy nest egg once he wasn't around anymore, then he's much more of a sympathetic character, and it's much easier to justify his actions and his rationalizations. But at the end of it, yeah, I mean, it started off that way, but I did it because I was good at it and I enjoyed it. Then at that point, really the only thing you can do is kill the guy off. Um, so anybody that was upset about that, regardless of how likable he was, or how compelling a character he was, or how good the story was, and... You know, for my two cents, Breaking Bad is the best show that's ever aired anywhere in the history of television. Absolutely. Um, you, you still, that's, that's that's the only thing you can do with a character like that. You have to kill him off at the end and to let Jesse get away uh, to give him that freedom because he really was sort of, not that, again, that he didn't become a willing participant, that he didn't do just as much shady evil shit, but he kind of got swept up in it. He wasn't the one that came up with things. He was recruited as the assistant and then got kind of trapped once he knew too much. But um, they gave him the redemption he deserved and being punished in the cage in the floor and then eventually released and Walter White got the redemption he deserved and I, I'm, I'm going to bleed out on the floor. And that's, that's just the way it has to be. Right. And, and so uh, a lot of these cases... Now, the anti-hero is such a strong uh, thing. We've been having it for years. As a comic book fan, you know, most of the relatable... Uh, characters are an anti-hero in some way, shape, or form. Uh, you got because I mean, those who aren't, you get like the tag of the big blue boy scout or whatever else. You get like exactly. almost mocked for your purity, Superman or or uh, uh, Captain America or the like, or even Batman. Even though he dresses like Dracula and beats the shit out of mentally ill asylum patients, he still won't kill anybody because that's his you know thing. His his. Uh, his whole thing is that his parents got gunned down in front of him, so you know, death is his limit. But anything right straight up to that, you know, he'll break your rib, he'll snap your jaw in half, he'll he'll beat the shit out of you, even though you're mentally ill, and send you to Arkham. Whatever it is, he won't kill you. But then it becomes that sort of that 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 moral thought experiment thing with the trolley, where well, for every time you don't kill the Joker and he finds some way to finagle his way out of the asylum, how many people does he kill? And is there blood on your hands too because you didn't take him out years ago? Every subsequent victim the Joker kills, you can sort of say in a roundabout way that Batman killed him too because he didn't do what he should have done a long time ago. Yeah, they touched on that real heavy in this last season of Titans on uh, HBO Max yeah. and. I thought they handled it pretty well because I mean that's a subject that that battles uh, the Batman universe you know quite a quite a lot is is what degree of guilt is assigned to Batman because of his inaction or mm -hmm. refusal to how act. much culpability does he bear mm -hmm. 
And then we have and characters. I'd say a lot. We have characters like Wolverine, of course, and Deadpool, who are always kind of in that uh, moral quandary of are they a hero or are they a villain? Are they somewhere in between? Or you got characters like Frank Castle, the Punisher. Lots of people root for it. You see it on t-shirts, you see it on car bumper stickers, you see it mm-hmm. everywhere. And he's a stone-cold killer. That's yeah. all he is. Does he kill bad guys? Yeah, but he does it in a way that he's the judge, jury, and executioner. The last word, the bottom line. And I uh, decide who dies and why. Right, exactly. So at what point does that power go to his head? At what point does that guy just say, you know what? Oh, I don't like the way you fucking looked at me. Bang! And then, you know, just become the evil that he set out to defeat. Now, we, of course, have right. a sympathetic backstory for Frank Castle. Anyone who knows anything about the Punisher knows his family was gunned down in, I think it was a Central Park in New York, uh, in the middle of a mob war. Uh, they were innocent, and, and two kids and a wife got gunned down, and which sent Frank on his... Uh, anti-mafioso crime-killing spree, whatever you want to call it. He's still a killer. He's still a murderer. Yep. He, uh, by a lot. And an unrepentant one at that. And yeah, he, He's extracted his pound of flesh from the mob uh, several thousand times over. Billion times over, right. And, and the thing is, is we identify with him to a degree... There's a lot of people, like I say, these on stickers and bumper stickers and, and t-shirts and, you know, all this shit. And people, like, equate them to the thin blue line with police officers. Can't tell you how many uh, soldiers have his uh, badge on their patches or, or you know, the thin blue line guys who have the Punisher logo on their, uh, their army dress-up kits or... Which is kind of terrifying if you think about it, because they're taking the wrong message from the character. Absolutely. Uh, because the, the Punisher's eyes very carefully written, uh, so that he, he, well, he was obviously, like you said, he would gun people down, he's a stone-cold murderer, he's killed thousands of people, but at the same time, I mean, he did it ostensibly for the right reasons. That's kind of harkening back to that doing the wrong thing for the right reasons thing. But anytime you see a Punisher logo, especially if it's got like an American flag or a thin blue line thing superimposed over it, you know that whoever is sending that message in a sort of nonverbal, tacit way is only identifying with the I should be able to Kill punish I anybody want. I want to yeah. for any time, for any reason, if I so choose kind of thing. And that's really not... They're missing the fucking point in, in, a, in a really, really grand way. Very viscerally missing the point. And uh, the idea yeah. that Jerry Dugan... Focusing on the violence rather than the motivations. Right. The creator of The Punisher, Jerry Dugan, even came out and said, Look, guys, you're getting this all yep. wrong. That is not who The Punisher is. You should not... I mean, he even put it in comic pages where The Punisher tore off his logo off of like a cop's fucking armband or whatever and is like dangling this prick over the side of a building. And, and, and you just you're getting the wrong message. If the creator, again, has to come out and... And tacitly say that's not what the deal is, you know. Have we gone too far? Have we missed the purpose? And 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 I mean, I get to a degree again. It's wish fulfillment. We want criminals to suffer. We want them to uh, have their vengeance, their pound of flesh. But at the same time, you're rooting for a serial killer. Uh, the same can yeah. be said with uh, uh, characters like Rick Sanchez from Rick and Morty. Uh, again, 
you have an example of this character who is unrepentantly dickhead. He's a dickhead. He's killed. He'll kill again. He'll kill when it suits him. <laughs> he'll switch realities and, and he'll fuck up his reality, switch realities and move over and kill the original host and move into that reality. I mean, it happened. Uh, well, happened in as much as it's a TV show and whatever canon. Sure. But you see Rick and Morty on t-shirts, bumper stickers, toys, pops, I mean, posters. My guitar player, James, and his girlfriend, Jess, are just so enamored with the Rick and Morty mythos. And it's like, yeah, it's again, he's not, a, he's not even a great grandfather. He's not even a great father. No. He's, he's well, just... I feel like I'm kind of uniquely um, positioned to be able to sort of like to sort of opine on the the, uh, the underlying motivations behind Rick and Morty because um, I knew Dan Harmon right. uh, before he was famous. Um, you know, uh, Dan Harmon name dropper. His, well, not his start. Well, here's the thing though; it's not going to be in a positive way, so don't uh, don't come looking for me. <laughs> but um, he was one of the founding members of this improv troupe called the Dead Ale Wives in Milwaukee. Uh, which my band at the time shared members with. So we were kind of their de facto house band. We booked ourselves to play with them pretty frequently, and we were always the one that uh, got the call if somebody else didn't show up. So we were there a lot. And uh, let me just say, without delving too much into telling tales out of school, that the idea of a guy who assumes he's the smartest guy in the room and that allows him to treat anybody any way he wants is very much a Dan Harmon thing. That's all the further I'll go with that. <laughs> well okay so i mean but they, i mean we've got it i mean I, you throw out an example who's who's a anti-hero that you've found yourself siding with that you know you got to realize and take a step back oh and gosh realize. well this all right um there's a great movie and it's a very underrated movie that came out i want to say late 80s early 90s and if you haven't seen it you definitely need to see it but it's a movie called falling down that stars michael oh Douglas. absolutely I love this movie. Um, in this movie, Michael Douglas, he, he plays a character named William Foster, but he goes by Defense because Defense is his personalized license plate that we see very prominently displayed in the first part of the movie. Um, he is stuck in traffic. Uh, I, I want to say the movie takes place in Los Angeles, um, which anybody who's ever driven to Los Angeles, yours truly included, understands how somebody can just snap over road rage, <laughs> but not, not that it was the road rage that, that was the, the thing that caused him to snap, but it was the final straw. But he's, he's the, the beginning of the film depicts him uh, being un, stuck in traffic, stuck in gridlock. There's horns honking. There's little kids flipping him off. There's just it's it's a frustrating situation we've all been in, and we just see him in real time, sort of like snap like a rubber band on an overwound balsa wood airplane. And so he gets out of his car. Uh, I don't again. It's been years since I've seen it, but he grabs a gun from somewhere, whether he has it with him or whether he knocks somebody down and takes it, and he just goes on a, uh, a sort of rampage, a, a, an unfocused, anarchic, mad rampage across Los Angeles, uh, just sort of rebelling against the idea of oppressive society itself, about this this machine we're all forced into as cogs to produce, and, you know, why was I in this car commuting to my job that I don't even like that doesn't even really pay me that much just to survive and be able to buy fabric softener and rents and all this other shit, and he, he goes and takes on... Uh, emblematic targets that in, in the narrative of the film and in sort of his view sort of represent what's wrong with society. So he's got this really sort of like cool balanced psychopathy going on um, 
but he, he goes, you know, like he, he kills a convenience store, uh, you know, when he sees the prices are too high. Uh, there's a fast food place uh, that he's like five or ten minutes late for breakfast, so he, he shoots that up. And, you know, the, the entire time he just thinks, you know, I'm not a bad guy, I'm just kind of going out there and, and striking a blow against all this bullshit stuff that's crap about society that all of us just sort of like accept, roll over and swallow without really questioning why we do that, because we think we don't have the power to change anything. But I'm out here with a gun in my hand, single-handedly changing shit. So what's your fucking excuse? And it just becomes this really interesting parable of um, not only one person's impacts, but uh, also why do we just roll over and and accept that the same uh, you know uh, Twinkie that costs forty cents if we buy it in bulk costs two dollars and ninety-five cents if we get it at a local convenience store? And it really does raise a lot of questions. It doesn't really answer too many. But uh, it's, it's a really great watch, and it's a compelling character, and I remember thinking at the time that it was uh, a real conversation starter and quite thought-provoking. Right, and you find, again, once again, we find ourselves rooting for this character who is, I mean, breaking the law, shooting things up, killing people, whatever. But it's that idea that, you know, we've all kind of been in that place, you know? We've all been yeah. wronged. We've all been taken advantage of. We've all been... Uh, abused in one way, shape, or form or another. And to have the ability uh, to strike back would be fantastic, but we just can't in today's society. Our society, we're just not able to take the law into our own hands, as it were. And so to see this this person who you can identify with uh, being able to do that maybe uh, lets the steam off a little bit. Kind of like they say that playing violent video games kind of takes the edge off of violent tendencies, much to uh, a certain right-wing pundits' uh, disagreement. But <laughs> Right. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the anti-hero as the star of the production has been a really huge thing for a lot of years. Uh, we've got, you know, characters like uh, Clint Eastwood's Man With No Name, okay, in, in that trilogy yeah. of movies, the old spaghetti westerns. Uh, he's not inherently good he's not inherently bad he's not the white the black he's kind of somewhere in that gray area in between uh we got tony montana the star of scarface who's a drug abuser a drug manufacturer a drug peddler but we still find um, a many times over murderer say hello to my little friend say hello to my little friend but, uh, you know, we get to see him do things, comical things, like dive headfirst into a swimming pool-sized uh, pile of cocaine. Um, you got Michael Corleone from the, the Godfather movies, who is, you know, we start rooting for him initially because he's not like his father. He's not like his brothers. He is this right. outsider looking in on the family business. But as the movies progress, you get to see him take on that that mantle and that role and become harder and edgier and he's still your protagonist he's still kind of who you're rooting for you know yeah uh, and i would also be remiss if i didn't uh, bring up uh, i i just remembered just now one of my all-time favorite and again this is it's tough to admit that this is one of my favorite movies because it is a tough fucking watch not just because of the subject matter but also because of the particular style of very recognized style of the filmmaker to the point where uh, he actually, you can describe something as being Kubrickian and everybody knows what you're talking about. But uh, Alexander DeLarge of A Clockwork Orange. Now that mm. movie is a very, very hard watch. Um, Alex is 
a gang member in a weird sort of like stylized future UK where he and his buddies all wear like long underwear and weird hats and they walk around with suspenders on and and uh, they beat the shit out of people. They engage in theft and and uh, destruction and uh, very graphically rendered sexual assault. And it, the, the movie, for the first half of it, spends a very uh, large amount of time and effort driving home to you that this guy is a garbage person. He is a horrible victimizer. <laughs> um, and uh, really doesn't seem to suffer a whole lot of ill effects for all the shit that he pulls. Right. Until he does. Uh, at some point, the, the tide turns against this character, and he is sort of brought to to uh, some kind of justice. Quasi-justice. But then, and again, this is a, a 50-year-old movie at this point, so I, I feel okay trucking in spoilers with this, but he is um, offered a lighter sentence, because he does get convicted of murder, uh, but he's offered a lighter sentence if he will undergo an experimental behavior modification therapy, known as the Ludovico Technique, where he is forced to be exposed to the things he enjoys, um... On, on a film screen, whether it's violence or sex or even uh, Beethoven music, uh, he's forced to observe those things by having his eyeballs pried open right. and at the same time being fed a drug into his system that causes him to experience incredible nausea, physical revulsion at the sight of the things he's seeing. And so the brain connects those two things where violence and sexual assault and theft and even Beethoven music... Um, is now inextricably linked in my psyche to this incredibly violently ill feeling. And so then they proclaim him rehabilitated, um, and they release him back into society, and he tries to return to his old life, but he winds up running against a lot of people that he was previously victimized, and they turn the tables on him, and of course, because he's adverse to violence now, they kick the shit out of him, and he's too busy throwing up to be able to defend himself. And it really... More than anything, it, I don't think that it glorifies violence, even though for the very first part of the movie it does have this very stylized, balletic sort of, like, violence going on and, and sexual assault and these horrible things. But then it calls into question the sort of nature of free will. And if you are compelled to be somebody who is good because you are conditioned against your natural instincts and tendencies, does that make you a good person or... Does it make the people who did this to you a bad person? Or if you're forced to behave, uh, what does that say about... It, if it you just have really brings to be up forced, all these interesting yeah. questions. Yeah, this movie... I was brought into this movie at, a, at the age of 14. And I don't know what it was about my parents at that particular moment in time where they said, yeah, okay, this seems like a good idea. Let's let, let's let young uh, Kevin watch a movie about glorified rape and aggravated assault and murder and and all this shit and just yeah whatever it's okay he's 14 he can handle it fuck it it fucked me up what i think is yeah oh yeah it, not just because of, of the way that it was uh of, of the message but also because of the visuals uh stanley kubrick has an incredibly grotesque style uh in which he shoots his scenes and uh boy not only were, was was the violent stuff very graphically depicted. Oh boy! But later on in the film, there are some camera angles and some character studies and other things that are just incredibly visually disturbing to watch. And so, you kind of feel like you're being conditioned against these things right along with Alex. But what I also find interesting is that the film took an interesting turn away from the narrative of the book that I think changed the message to a pretty dramatic degree. And it's called the 21st chapter thing. Now, in the original book written by Anthony Burgess, um, it's been made pretty clear that 
at the end of the film, or no, excuse me, at the end of the book, again, i got to differentiate the two because they're very similar, but they, they differ in this very important way. At the end of the film, um, Alex is taken in by some psychologists who seek to deprogram him from the Ludovico Technique's effects and sort of restore his free will right? Um, by taking out the conditioning that's been put on him and giving him back his ability to do what he wants and not have to be to fear that he's going to be too sick. And the final scene of the film is Alex being deprogrammed and sort of fantasizing about this very violent orgy scene and realizing that, you know, well, I guess I was cured after all because to him, being restored to his natural state of being able to be be able to engage in things like sexual assault and violence is the way he wanted to be all along, and therefore, because that's his reality and his normal, he's kind of restored to that at the end of the film. However, in the book, Anthony Burgess writes a 21st chapter that was not included as part of the narrative, where Alex still does get deprogrammed by the psychologists who restore his free will, but then he decides that virtue is its own reward and continues to be good anyway. And whether that's a statement about society, whether it lessens the impact of the film... Uh, whether it lessens the overall impact of the story itself or what have you, is, is certainly a, a question that's probably going to be up for debate by way smarter people than me for a long time. But it, it really does, because those two movies, because those, sorry, those two pieces of entertainment do divert so heavily in the actual sort of message of the denouement, it does become a sort of a weird, does he or doesn't he, is he really an anti-hero or because he has the ability to choose and and be good. It, the ultimate question becoming, if you are a person with evil tendencies that chooses against overwhelming urges to be good, does that make you a better person than somebody who is naturally inclined to be good just as a part of their character? And I think that's a really good question to ask. Yeah, and, and I think that, that dovetails into like a lot of religious philosophy as well. Um, yeah. Because, I mean, even in biblical studies you have the people who were wrongdoers who ended up following Jesus and repenting and becoming apostles and whatnot. I mean, I'm not the world's foremost authority on the Bible by any stretch of the imagination, nope. nor will I ever choose to be. But uh, that story's tale as old as time, quite literally. So, Yeah, uh, and that definitely brings up some questions. Uh, also, like, uh, boy, um, Penn Jillette has a very famous quote. Oh, I love Penn. being a famous atheist and me being a much less famous atheist. But <laughs> he's got a famous quote, and I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't really have it in front of me. But he says, whenever a religious person asks me, so you don't believe in God, then what's to stop you from killing all you want or raping all you want if there's no fear of posthumous punishment? And Penn response to that is, I do rape all I want and kill all I want. And the amount I want is zero because those things are fucking monstrous and horrible. And if you're going to sit there and tell me that the only thing keeping you from raping and killing other humans is the fact that you worry that your sky daddy is going to be disappointed in you and send you to burn in hell for all eternity, that's more of a condemnation of your faith than it is an endorsement of it. And I happen to agree with that sentiment. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, again, I mean, I just, we end up looking at, I mean, if you can't hit a piece of media these days without stumbling across this anti-hero kind of formulaic thing. Uh, your Deadpools, yeah. your Wolverines, your Punishers, or even if you go into things like Game of Thrones, uh, a real big good example in Game of Thrones is Jamie Lannister. We all know that Jamie Lannister from the very beginning, and I'm talking just the movie or the the TV show. We're not talking about the books, uh, but just from the very first episode, we know that he's a repugnant, terrible piece of shit. 
it, yeah. it's not veiled. I mean, he shoves a, a ten-year-old boy off a balcony to his death. The things I do for love. Essentially, while he's fucking his sister. I mean, that's pretty blatant. His own sister, not the ten-year-old boy's sister. Right, right. Out. We should point that out. Seriously, right. Lannister. But, uh, so but, incest but, and murder right out of the gate. Right, but across, across the entire length of the show, we are presented with a more humanizing factor of Jamie Lannister as he becomes humbled, as he becomes, you know, more humane, more human. And then they kind of squandered at the end, but we won't talk about season eight. But Well, you know, uh, Game of Thrones squandered everything at the end. Right. But we have, you know, this... Fuck, even if you want to say, like, go with a couple of really good examples, uh, the, uh, the crew of Serenity... From Firefly. They're not great sure. people. They do some good nope. things, but they're criminals. They're outlaws. We're not even sure they're on the right side of that war. I read a really compelling argument the other day saying that uh, the brown coats that everybody roots for was the fucking rebellion. They were the uh, the Confederacy for whatever reason. And and so, I mean, and then I could get into that at length, but. Uh, we, we'll talk about that another time because I'm pretty sure Firefly is something I could wax on for, for for a while. But uh, your Han Solos, your uh, your uh, Indiana Jones, if you want to stick with uh, <laughs> with uh, Harrison Ford characters, I mean it's so rife a trope throughout all of movies and comic books and books and and television shows. Uh, Jules Jules Winfield and Vincent Vega. From uh, yeah. Pulp Fiction, you end up rooting uh, for Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. Right, exactly that. Uh, Max. I mean, these uh, characters Rakitansky have really been around for as Mad long Max. as we can. Uh, oh, hell yeah! This this archetype of a character has been around since as long as there have been stories that we've told. Uh, well, maybe okay. Maybe I, sh- I shouldn't go that far and say that because I'm I'm looking at that from a very modernistic perspective as far as uh, TV and and movies and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, most heroes. Um, well, you know what? No, I'm going to walk back my walk back. Because if you want to go really, really far back and talk about, you know, guys like Odysseus or um, or Beowulf, I mean, the, these were presented as being, or any of you sort of like pantheon of Greek gods, uh, these were, were, were portrayed as being incredibly human people who had human appetites, human failings, human flaws, even though they were sort of being held up as these, uh, these characters of admiration. So, yeah, I guess uh, since time out of mind, since we've had stories... We've definitely had very human characters with, with incredibly textured personalities and gray morality that we're supposed to identify with and project ourselves on to some degree. And I think that's kind of the be-all, end-all takeaway of this, is the reason that we root for these characters. We all want to believe ourselves as ostensibly good. Even the, even the, the, the bad guys, the villains, uh, don't believe they're the villains in their own head. They've got some kind of uh, moralistic uh, acrobatics that they're doing to, to kind of prove to themselves why they're not... Uh, what everyone thinks they are and why they're better than what everyone thinks they are. But by and large... Yeah, which kind of... It brings me back to sort of like what you said about... You you mentioned the Ben Affleck Daredevil earlier, but if we could talk about the good Daredevil for a minute with Charlie Cox, (laughs) Vincent D'Onofrio's take on Kingpin, on Wilson Fisk, I think, for my 10 cents, is one of the best villain portrayals of any on-screen villain in the last 50 years. Because most villains, if you're a lazy writer, if you have shitty source material to work with... You've got a black hat and mustache twirling villain who just ties the lady to the railroad tracks because he's evil and that's what he does. Um, but the Vincent D'Onofrio's kingpin in that series was portrayed as being 
not not descending into cliche of like you're we're the same you and me all that shit, but that kind of is like that's often thrown out in, in, in exposition, but it's not often as as nuanced in the narrative as it was with that character. Um, he looked at Daredevil as being a Boy Scout because, well, you're going to punch people who are trying to tear down my buildings. I'm trying to tear down buildings as a means of improving this neighborhood. You and I are both trying to make Hell's Kitchen better. I'm just doing it through gentrification and through money and through construction. And, you know, maybe I people who get in my way wind up in the foundations of some of these buildings I'm building. But you got to, <laughs> you know, you, you can't make progress without cracking a few heads together. And at the time, I remember, and you saw Daredevil, obviously... Um, there was a recurring theme where Wilson Fisk was seen in several scenes cracking eggs to make omelets. That was kind of a central theme of his character. He loved to make himself breakfast, and he was breaking eggs to make omelets, which is obviously a metaphor. They didn't clobber you over the head with it, but if you're looking for it and you understood the, the, the sort of symbolism of that, you understood what they were going for. And I remember at the time tweeting at the official account on Twitter of the Daredevil series thinking... And I, I think I said something like, you know, the rate at which Wilson Fisk cracks eggs to make omelets is almost like he understands, oh, wait a minute. And I got a like from the showrunner on that tweet. So <laughs> I know it was an intentional piece of symbolism. Um, but he really did view himself as the hero of his own story. I'm trying to make this neighborhood better by improving it. You're trying to make it better by throwing anybody that gets in my way into a storm drain and then punching somebody who's trying to get a wrecking ball in that building that's rotting to knock it down and put up something better. And... It really was, even though we're supposed to cheer for uh, for Matt Murdock in that instance, I really do think that Wilson Fisk was such an interesting villain because he really saw himself as the hero of his own story. Well, you could and say, that came across. You could say the same thing with Thanos in uh, the Infinity War yeah. and oh, Endgame. Yeah. He uh, was under the impression that he was eliminating half uh, in a fair and dispassionate manner in order to create more resources for those who remained. On paper... Maybe that sounds... Okay, it doesn't sound great, but, you know, it sounds plausible. <sighs> but Yeah, I mean, he, he had the all five Infinity Stones and the Gauntlet. He could have snapped his fingers and, I don't know, doubled the food and the water or something rather than kill half the people. But, right. he, you know, he's got a, a bent for destruction and death, so he chose his path and he decided to go with it. But you see, like, even in Hawkeye, you'll see in the background uh, little, little uh, details that say, like, oh, Thanos was right. You know, you yeah. have this real... And I've seen you see those on T-shirts. You see, uh, like Magneto was right, or, or the villain was right, and there are always people who will cheer for the villain. And we, we saw that when fucking Trump got elected. There are always people who'll be in the corner of the bad guy, no matter how obviously and unrepentantly bad that they happen to be. Um, there's actually a trope on TVTropes.com, which is a website I do not recommend you go to because it'll eat your life. Um, <laughs> cataloging all the narrative devices in, in entertainment, but there's a trope called. Yeah, villain has a point. And it kind of came to be an actual line in the Falcon and Winter Soldier series when um, Bucky and Sam were on the plane with Baron Zemo, and Sam turned to Bucky and said, he's out of line, but he's got a point. He's out of line, but he's right. right. Um, my most, my, my favorite example of the, the, the trope of villain has a point is um, Valentine in the original Kingsman movie. Okay. Um wherein Samuel Jackson uh, distributes SIM cards to anybody and everybody in the world who has a cell phone and wants one, saying you get unlimited talk, text, free internet, this is free, it's a worldwide network, you get my free service, you'd be stupid not to take me up on this, take my SIM card, put it in your phone, you will get free communication forever, no strings attached, 
Nothing. And then, of course, we come to find out that behind the scenes, he's been working with the elites of the world, i.e. the 1% royalty, the powerful, to create a small behind-the-ear implant that will save them when he sets off these SIM cards in these phones with this sort of almost brown note frequency that has been proven through uh, science to trigger incredible violence in the brain that'll make you start beating the shit out of whoever's next to you without impunity and without thinking. Uh, because his rationale is, and he says this in the movie, I'm actually going to paraphrase again, but he said, you know, um, why do we get a fever? Because we have a body and we are a living organism, and if something is an intrusion, like a bacteria or a virus, our body will raise its temperature to a point where we're going to be uncomfortable, but the human body will survive, but it raises itself to a temperature where whatever the intruding foreign harmful body in our body is, um, will be killed. Uh, whether it's a virus, bacteria, whatever, we can survive, but the virus can't. Uh, the Earth is a living organism, and we are the virus. That's why we have things like climate change, i.e. global warming. That's why the, the global temperature is rising, because the Earth has a fever, and it's trying to kill off what's killing it before it dies itself. So I'm going to accelerate that process. Um, any man, woman, or child who gets my phone when I set off that frequency... They're just all going to beat the shit out of each other. There's going to be bloody mobs in the streets pounding the absolute tar out of each other, and that'll bring the population down. And at that point, the Earth will survive, and there'll be more for all of us, the elites, the rich, the powerful. So this implant that's behind your ear will negate the, uh, the, the frequency should you happen to hear it, and you're not going to put the SIM card in your phone, so you're not really in a lot of danger to begin with. Plus, I'm taking all of you who, who might want to and putting you in my stereotypical villain mountain lair. Um, but... Watching this, even though the Sam Jackson Valentine character was portrayed as obviously being the villain, I was forced to concede, you know what, he has a point. Uh, people are too many. There are The population explosion has caused a, a, um, a drought in resources. Uh, it's caused overpopulation. Uh, cities are getting too hot because there are these concrete jungles that trap heat. There's not enough food. There's not enough water. If everybody on Earth consumed like Americans do, we'd need six planets. So... Yeah, he's kind of got a point. If we bring down the population to a uh, uh, a very dramatic degree, then there will be more resources. But of course, because there is such an anti-billionaire and anti-powerful person sentiment, being able to, uh, to to say, well, the people that get saved from this, the people that are going to to hang out and, and sort of like be on the ark and repopulate the planet, are going to be the rich, the powerful, the billionaires, the royalty, the world leaders, and that kind of thing. So right. they had to kind of throw that particular wrinkle into his overall mastermind Machiavellian plan in order that we understand, well, okay, he's got a point, there are too many people, but he's still an evil motherfucker who deserves to die at the end of the movie, which, of course, he does. Um, but, you know, then there is still the problem of, okay, we might have stopped this massive self-imposed genocide of we're all going to beat the shit out of each other until we're a giant bloody pile... But we still have to deal with climate change and overpopulation and a, yeah. and a lack of resources. So now what? And, and again, I think those, those kind of things are designed to make us think, uh, you know, like exactly like yeah. you said, oh, well, this guy was a villain because X, but this is still a problem, you know. And, and yeah. so what are we going to do about that? It's designed to make us think. We don't always do it. Uh, we don't always rise to the occasion. But uh, I think a lot of times we see... Everyone sees themselves, for one reason or another, as the white hat. They want to picture right. themselves as good, moral, uh, upstanding, uh, religious or non-religious, which We can justify our own actions if we, if we do them for the right reasons, because we judge ourselves on our intentions and others on their actions, because we don't have uh, right. access to somebody else's internal monologue. Right, exactly that. So we see ourselves as these white hats. We see everyone else as the gray or black hats. 
But the problem is, is everyone else sees themselves as the white hats too and sees us yep. as the gray or black hats. And so we have this, this real uh, inability, not necessarily inability, but uh, unwillingness to always accept the fact that we all live in this massive gray area in between. None of us are 100% yeah. good. None of us are 100% evil. And I think that's where these anti-heroes are where we kind of that's why they draw our focus so much that's why they draw our mm-hmm. attention so much is because we see the good we see the bad we see the good we see the bad you know oh well you know rick sanchez is going on adventures with his kid or with his grandson great yay but you know we're able to kind of glaze over the fact that you know he's murdering everybody while being a pickle I turned myself into a pickle, Morty! Boom! Big reveal. I'm a pickle. What do you think about that? I'm Pickle Rick! Um, <laughs> we, we get to to cheer for Tony Soprano, you know, fighting his best to take care of his family and to, to, to solve the problem of his uh, uh, biological uh, anxious nature. But at the same time, we're able to kind of gloss over the fact that didn't he just run that guy over yeah. with his car or... You know, we cheer for John Wick the hitman. We cheer for Rambo the vigilante. We cheer for Jack Sparrow the pirate, because we sort of are able to read into, okay, we, we identify with that because we too are have have done the right thing for the wrong reason sometimes. I read this book a long time ago. I don't remember the book, uh, and I apologize for that because I can't really cite my sources on this one. But uh, there was a theme that came up through the book, throughout the book, as a, as a character, we sort of got a, a sense of their internal monologue. That a different version of us exists in the heads of everybody we know. Oh, yeah. Nobody knows us completely, including ourselves. I mean, we're always, I mean, I'm finding out new shit about myself all the time. I know we all are. And that is as it should be. Humans should evolve and grow. But a different version of you exists in the head of everybody you've ever met. They all know little pieces of you. Whatever you've chosen to present to them, whatever circumstances they've seen you in at the time that you met them and that you were part of their life. And so it's inevitable that regardless of how honorably you, you conduct yourself... Everybody is the villain in somebody else's story. Absolutely. With the possible exception like maybe Mr. Rogers or Bob Ross or whatever. Um, everybody is the villain in somebody else's story. You only have a certain amount of control over how you present yourself. And God knows, I mean, I've, I've, I try to control my temper. I'm a pretty even-tempered person. Not much really riles me up. But there have been times that I've lost it and I've snapped on people. And sometimes there are people that I never saw again i have actually a handful of times yelled at people in public because maybe they parked my car into the uh, i couldn't get in my car or somebody cut me off in traffic or or somebody was being abusive to a service person these are all things that have actually happened and i've sort of snapped and raised my voice at somebody maybe i was already having a bad day and that just set me off or maybe whatever that other person did was so egregious that i thought the only way to fight fire is with fire and be the bigger villain and actually draw myself up to my full six foot five and 320 pounds and and show them, hey, there's always a bigger person, and if you're going to be a giant bully in public, I got no compunction about doing the same thing, whatever it is. But nobody is completely good. As honorably as we try to conduct ourselves, and as much as we try to think of ourselves, like you said, as being the white hat and the good person, uh, there's just no way that uh, that everybody that we've ever known in our lives thinks of us that way, because nobody's perfect all the time. And sometimes we do do the right thing for the wrong reason. And the way I like to equate that is is, is think of it like a video game. Because I, I equate a lot of things to video games. I'm a video game nerd. Yeah. That's what I do. We are mm-hmm. player characters in our own story. Everyone else, no matter how significant or important, they're NPCs. I used to be an adventurer like you. We have no control yes, over them. They've got their own dialogue, their own scripts. 
They've got their own, you know, story arcs. They've got their own plot devices. They are outside of our control. They are NPCs. And so we always want to picture ourselves as, again, these upstanding citizens, but we can't exactly control the fact that we are all a shade of gray. Even the shittiest person in the world uh, doesn't necessarily feel like they're the shittiest person in the world. I'm sure Kim Jong-un thinks he's a fucking righteous human being. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure Donald Trump gets out of bed every morning smiling, thinking he's the bee's knees. Uh, I'm sure Hitler... I mean, the classic Hitler loves yeah, dogs example. Right, I mean, yeah. exactly that. Loved to paint and And his secretary said he was a very and... soft-spoken, very, uh, very generous man, and... She was deliberately kept in the dark about all the atrocities and didn't find out until, you know, Nuremberg that he was Hitler because he was always (laughs) kind to her. So, you know, nobody gets a total picture of another person, no matter how well you know them, including, you know, like I said before, ourselves. We we know ourselves better than anybody else, but we still are, 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 we, we don't know ourselves as well as we should, and we never will. Exactly. And so I think that's why we gravitate towards these characters, because we're looking for the best in these characters not only are we looking for their heroic qualities or their good qualities or whatever we're looking to justify our own shit uh, our own impulses our own dark sides our dark passengers if you want to quote dexter we're looking to justify our own thing and be like see we're not so bad and good bad or ugly you know we all have that dark side we all have that that I don't know that that piece of us that maybe is a bit more morally ambiguous than we would like it to be. And so we see these characters and in these characters, we see uh, a way to justify our own behaviors to a degree. I'm not saying we go out murdering or killing or or, uh, you know, even slashing tires or punching bad guys. But, you know, we're able to see. Um, that these impulses, these desires, these wishes are more commonplace than we expect and, and it enables us to justify a lot of nature to ourselves. I, that's my opinion on it. Yeah, look, maybe I, I got, gave the barista a five and she was flustered and gave me back change for a 20 and I didn't realize it right away and then I got home and had a little bit of extra money and I didn't go back to the Starbucks, but at least I didn't get three quarters of Albuquerque hooked on fucking blue meth, so maybe I'm not terrible. Right, exactly that. Or uh, I didn't pay that parking ticket, but you know, whatever. I I, I donate to charities, so that makes me a good person. So it kind of washes out, you know. Yeah, it all balances out in the end. We like to tell ourselves, and karma is a funny thing. But yeah, that really is, I think, the bottom line about all is that we, we identify with these characters because we see ourselves in them, and that really is um, that's why these these characters are so compelling. I really think that's the case. So so let us know what you guys think. Uh, which uh, anti-hero do you find yourself kind of pulling for which uh example do you draw from is it the vic Mackeys or the tony sopranos of the world or the the darth vaders or you go a little bit more uh towards the heroic with indiana jones or han solo or or whoever it is who do you guys uh relate to and why let us know uh hit us up on our facebook page it's going to be facebook.com forward slash fuel your fandom uh, you can hit us up in our Gmail if you want to drop a a comment there. We would definitely love to read them there at uh, fuelyourfandom at gmail.com. 
And if you want to hit us up on the backup email address, uh, that is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. That is where you send your show ideas, your pie recipes, and your guest suggestions, especially if they're yourself. Uh, much like a uh, friend of the podcast and listener Josh Bombach did. And, and we're going to be talking to him very soon about being a guest in an upcoming episode. So if you've got an opinion or something to say about something, then uh, just let us know. And, of course, you can always find us on Twitter at Fuel underscore your, at Instagram, at at Fuel Your Fandom. And we are still taking holiday donations for the Fuel the Future charity drive at PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App, all of which are at at Fuel Your Fandom. Super exciting. I got some some giveaway stuff that we're going to be putting into kind of a, a drawing kind of thing. So for everyone who donates to the uh, Fuel the Future charity, uh, we'll put your name in a hat. And at some point here in the future, I've got some uh, fabulous prizes, so that should be fun. Yeah, and even though you're listening to us, you can still find us, uh, if you haven't found us yet, which I don't know how you'd hear us if you were, but you know, life's confusing <laughs> and the world is a strange place. Right. But you can dig us up at any of the places where you find fine podcasts. You can get us on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, uh, Player FM, any of the uh, cool places where you listen to this kind of stuff. Amazon Music. Oh, yeah, Amazon, Amazon Music. That's a new too, one. yeah. Yeah, and, and if you're impatient, you can always dig us up earliest and best at our Buzzsprout page at fuelyourfandom.buzzsprout.com, which is where my lovely and talented co-host uh, gets those episodes up every Friday. Absolutely, I do. Most of the time on time. Sometimes not. I mean, life happens. But well, it is the holiday season. We haven't really been able to keep a consistent schedule when we lay these things down, but... Uh, I'll do credit to you for taking on the heavy lifting and making sure this stuff gets up on the site and into the ear holes of our very dedicated and incredibly appreciated fan base. It is a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it, my friend. For sure. Well, we want to thank you guys for listening to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. And please do remember what we try to remind you is that everything is fandom, and fandom is everything. Take care. they're the hero of their own star.